from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy, where the doctor is always in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, today's program is not live, so I can't take your calls. Instead, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell and I will answer some of the most recent emails we've received. You can email a question to us anytime. You can send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, and we'll be right back after the news. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, we're not live on the air this morning. We are talking, uh, so we're not taking phone calls. Instead, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell and I are going through some emails that we've received recently. And you can email us anytime, incidentally, not just when you're you're listening, but anytime that something comes to your mind. I know a lot of things, just like a doctor's visit, some things come to mind later after you've left. Our email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Good to see you here in studio with me. You know, it's uh, interesting for me. I recently took over producing uh, Southern Remedy from Jay White. We did a little shuffling of uh, job duties, and it's kind of come full circle to me because uh, I was the original Southern Remedy producer uh, back when uh, Dr. Rick DeShazo first came on the air. So, yeah, yeah, I remember I was a guest, I think, maybe not in the first season, but the second one I came around, and, uh, and certainly... Uh, uh, it was after, uh, uh, gosh, how long ago was that? I'm going to date you here, Kevin. That's been, I, th- I think it was right after Katrina. So that would have yeah. been, what, 2006, I yeah. guess. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a while. So, yeah, I'm, I'm the gray beard around here. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're helping out uh, this morning, helping me out going through it. We get a lot of emails. You know, people don't they realize it is a live call-in program, not this morning, but normally, and um, and uh, I think people don't think about sending in those emails, but that's a wonderful way if something comes up later, or if you're not in a situation where you can call uh, and you're listening, uh, you can certainly send us an email, and we try to get back to you for all of our Southern Remedy programs, not just this one. Yeah, and so I think uh, on occasion we might do this is you know, uh, kind of clear out the backlog uh, because there are always some good questions that, as you say, sometimes we don't get to address on the air, so this is a perfect opportunity. Uh, so I'd start out with a question. Actually, I supplemented our emails with a couple that I had, and uh, the first one is uh, if you have a doctor's visit, for, from a doctor's standpoint, what, what are you hoping, expecting a patient to bring with them in terms of information, uh, that sort of thing, when they come into your office for a visit? That's an excellent question. So uh, just about everybody, everybody's a patient, at least a potential patient. If you haven't gone to the physician, uh, no matter what your age, you probably will at some point. And when you get there, you can almost think of this as a sport. You know, what do you need to be successful in a sport? If you play golf, you're not going to go out to the driving range or to the golf course and uh, not have all of your clubs there with you or all of your golf. And I've gone out and I hadn't had a golf tee, you know, in my bag. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to, you know, do this? So, yeah, you want certain things to be prepared. And it helps the visit go along. Your physician or healthcare provider is going to be asking you certain questions and guiding you through that. But particularly for the first time that you go to a physician, there are some things that you can take with you. And look, everybody, including physicians as patients, 
you can get nervous when you get in that room and forget everything that you thought you were going to ask about. Uh, some basic things, whether you have a, a complaint of something going on right now or not, is are there any medications that you're taking? And it does help at least the first time. And I just recommend to my patients, you know, bring your medications with you every time. Something may have changed. And that also includes people forget about those over-the-counter medications or supplements because they can sometimes, uh, you know, interfere with other medications or there may be some things in there that may not be the best for you. So medications are, are a big one. The second thing is anything that's happened to you in the past, whether that's been an illness or a chronic medical condition that you've been told that you have or you know that you have, and any surgeries that you've had also, that's very helpful. Uh, certainly your physician would look at, uh, at for scars or things like that. I always try to do that and like, hey, did you have a surgery here if they didn't tell me? Uh, however, it's always helpful to, to say that. And then a big one is allergies. So allergies are adverse effects that you've had, not just to medications, but to other things as well. If you're allergic to wasp or bees, that's really important. And it's going to you know play into what your physician does to help prevent that reaction uh, in the future. Um, and then a family history. What runs in your family? Are there any things... Uh, you know, a lot of people come in with certain joint aches or pains if they have a family history, say, of rheumatoid arthritis or other anti-inflammatory, excuse me, and, uh, autoimmune diseases, then I might think about that. So those are some basic things. And look, you can't remember all that. I can't remember all that. It's nice. I love it when a patient says, here's my, a new, particularly a new patient, they give me a sheet of paper and it has all these things on it. Uh, and, you know, just writing that down, it's not a bad idea to take that to different physicians. If you go to a subspecialist, uh, they're not going to know what's going on with you. It's sort of nice. We share information as physicians, but a lot of times, you know, it's so important as a patient to not assume that your physician's going to have all the information, but to tell them. So those are some basic things when you Go to your doctor's visits to do that. Some people have a portfolio that they <laughs> take out. Usually it's retired engineers. So they, they're very, they have spreadsheets of everything. Well, you know, the question came up because I recently went, to, was referred to a, a specialist. And when I got there, they were asking me some basic, you know, the first thing was, well, what are you here for today? And at first I was thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, why does he not know that? But then I realized that. Again, I had not seen this doctor first, and so, you know, he needed to know that information, and so uh, that's why that kind of question came up. But, uh, yeah, good thing to have uh, – be prepared, and I guess, too, is it might not come up in the visit, but if you have it or at least have it written down or something, you've got it there in case something yeah. comes up to where you need to answer hey, What you said about, you know, not the doctor not knowing why I'm here, that's, a, that's one that comes up all the time. As a patient, you should understand that, that all physicians and healthcare providers are – trained to ask that question because it may be different from what's in the computer on the visit. I mean, a lot of times it'll say they're there for a wellness visit, but they're really there for a chronic cough. Um, and that's where we start. That's what we're trained to do is ask for something called a chief complaint. So that is, uh, you know, the chief complaint can be follow-up for hypertension. Uh, it can be sore throat, anything. But we build our questions around that chief complaint, and that's really why are you here in the office today. So it's not something that we're trying to be insulting or anything. That's just where we're trained to build our detective work starts right there.
And again, I think it's good for patients to keep in mind the more information that you as a patient give to your doctor, the more successful, uh, the better that visit's going to go, the more he can do to help you solve whatever problem it is that you have. Absolutely. All right, let's uh, tackle some of these emails. This first one here says, I visit both a primary care physician uh, and an endocrinologist. Endocrinologist. Thank you, regularly. Uh, one requ- I, I was practicing that before and I still messed it up. One requires fasting before a lipid panel test, the other doesn't. Before we get into the question, this specific question, tell us what is a lipid panel test? Yeah, a lipid panel is something that um, just about everybody should get at a certain age, particularly over the age of 40. A lot of wellness plans now will cover that. So a lipid panel is the old cholesterol test. That's a way to think about it. So it's not a single number. It's a panel because it's a number of of things that they check. Usually that includes a basic lipid panel is a total cholesterol, an HDL, that stands for high-density lipoprotein, HDL cholesterol, an LDL, that's a low-density lipoprotein, and a triglyceride. So those are the main components that we use to figure out what's your total risk of having atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And that's um, stroke and heart attack are the two biggest things. Certainly it can affect other organs, but those are the two biggest things we think about. And, you know, LDL, I, I just tell patients, don't you don't need to know what it means. L for lousy. So the higher that is, the worse your risk is. <clears throat> HDL, healthy. So the higher it is, the more healthy you are, generally speaking. And then total uh, is really made up of those different components, including the triglycerides. Triglycerides, they're also, it's a little less of a risk factor, uh, particularly if it's less than about 200. It's not as big a deal, but it's part of that equation. All right. So then this specific emailer asks, uh, what's the current practice on the necessity of fasting before a lipid panel test? I raised the question because I'm elderly, an elderly diabetic. My blood glucose level is highly variable and not all predictable. I never know what to expect on every given morning. I wake up with a blood glucose level 60 or maybe 200. If it's high, it means it uh, that I take a larger than usual amount of Homolong? Oh, that's insulin, type okay. of insulin, yeah. Uh, and I'll need to eat again soon. If my BGL is low, it means I need to eat soon, then take a low dose of medicine afterwards. So in either case, it's a problem for me to leave home, drive 10 miles in rush hour traffic, then wait my turn to have blood drawn, et cetera, et cetera. So what are the guidelines, especially here uh, for someone who is diabetic? Yeah, that's a typical patient, too. You know, a lot of patients, uh, particularly in some areas of the South and in Mississippi in particular, they have to drive three or four hours just to see their physician. Well, if you're fasting, I mean, that's a four-hour trip. And particularly for a patient like this that's taking insulin for their diabetes, you have to eat after you take it. You can't really fast and take it, and it may make your blood sugar go up and down. Well, the the basic thing is um, what we know about lipids, it will affect if you eat and then you take that lipid panel, particularly the triglyceride level and the total cholesterol level. But LDL, the way we measure it now in most places, uh, is, a, is, is a calculation. Some, some do a direct measurement, and HDL is directly measured. So it really doesn't matter too much. In a lot of ways, you're seeing what a more true picture of that cholesterol is. I mean, people don't fast, you know, for extended periods anyway. Um, but for most calculations, and if you look at how the, the most recent guidelines, which was a 
man, we got everybody together for these recent guidelines on cholesterol testing and and how to to risk stratify people for cardiovascular disease. And they said, you know what, just it doesn't really matter if you get it fasting or not fasting. Fasting is going to give you a little bit more accurate reading. And if it's abnormal, you may, may want to follow that up with a fast. But I don't, you know, my patients are in that same situation. I don't really parse hairs on that. For this particular person, it's not going to matter that much anyway. Probably they're going to need a cholesterol medication just because of the diabetes increases their risk of heart attack and stroke. Uh, and I remember when I went for my annual wellness checkup, they did sometimes recommend too fast uh, before blood work was done. And again, that's the case. But you're saying maybe not that big of a deal. In particularly for this one, the other thing that you would fast for would be a blood glucose level. That's a blood sugar level. We're really transitioning away from that. Most insurance companies now, particularly for the wellness benefit, is transitioning away from that to a, a hemoglobin A1C, which is an average blood sugar level. So uh, for the last three months, and it's a much better picture of, of what's going on in that pre-diabetic state. Uh, this is uh, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Jimmy this morning. It's an all-email show. Uh, so if you would like to send in your question via email, you can always send it to us. It's remedy at mpbonline.org. What we'll do is we're going to take our first break this hour. Uh, when we get back, we will have some more email questions about testosterone levels and the Dean Ornish program for mitigating heart disease. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with Kevin Farrell, who's the producer of Southern Remedy. And we're not live this morning, but we are going through some email. That's right. You can reach us by email. And most people don't know that. I think we talk about it a lot and people say, hey, I want to call in. And that's great. We really enjoy when you call in because that's uh, sort of what drives the program for the content. But you can also email us, not just when we're on the air, but when we're off the air. Our email address is remedy at mpbonline.com. Dot org. Uh, you know, I've been on the on the program off and on uh, for, gosh, probably this October. I think it's going to be four years. Mm. Um, but people don't quite know, like some of them may be t- tuning in. It's like, who is this crazy guy <laughs> on the radio? So, uh, Well, you know, uh, Dr. Jimmy, the, the way we first met is an interesting story. I remember I went to uh, visit my folks in upstate New York several summers ago, and uh, my mother made some sort of random question about, you know, what was the result of your last, you know, annual checkup? And I'm like, annual checkup? What are you talking about? She says, well, you don't go to that. And so uh, I went to it. Uh, actually, what happened was uh, they wanted to test my blood pressure, but my dad, who was a nurse, 
put the blood pressure cuff on backwards or something. And anyway, we got this reading that was just like, oh, my gosh, yeah. you need to get this checked out. So I'd asked Dr. Rick, who was the show's host then, you know, for yep. a recommendation. And uh, you, uh, I think our first visit was with uh, high blood pressure. Uh, and then, you know, years later, uh, we met again uh, as you uh, took over uh, hosting duties uh, for the show. So if you would tell us a little bit about uh, your background. Sure. So I'm a native Mississippian. I grew up in uh, just south of Jackson in uh, the community of Byram, a uh, town now. I uh, went to high school there and then went to uh, undergraduate at Mississippi College in Clinton and uh, worked for the Corps of Engineers for one year, just doing some basic research in Vicksburg, still staying in the state. And then I went to medical school at uh, the University of Mississippi Medical Center and became interested in, in two separate fields. One was pediatrics and the other internal medicine. So those are two separate things. But there was uh, a an opportunity to do a combined training path in both of those. So I did what's called MedPeds. So that's internal medicine and pediatrics. So that was four more years at, uh, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center here in Jackson. And then I served as chief resident in the internal medicine residency program, sort of an administrative and teaching role there, uh, and then came on faculty in 2002. And as Kevin mentioned, uh, particularly earlier in my career, I had a focus in, uh, in hypertension, have always liked that, not just in adults, but also in kids. So it's, it's not as common, but we do see it, unfortunately, in, in children and adolescents. And then also in, uh, in teaching. Uh, so since that time, I, I served as, uh, for 14 years as the MedPeach program director and just uh, passed the torch to Dr. Zeb Henson in that role. And then I'm, I've, uh, since September of 2017, I've been serving as the Associate Dean for Graduate Medical Education, which is sort of all over all the graduate medical, um, all the residencies and fellowships on campus. So that's me. I'm homegrown from the state of Mississippi and uh, uh, love the state, uh, love uh, healthcare and teaching, and have had lots of good opportunities, particularly at UMC, to do that. So what would you say, and I'm going to put you on the spot here for a Uh-oh. minute, uh, what, what's the most challenging part of being a doctor? The most challenging, and this is, this is something that's common, I think. It's pretty easy. I, I think, you know, most of us, no matter what your discipline that you go into in, in medicine, uh, whether it's surgical, non-surgical, pediatrics, adult, um, you, you go in it because you want to help people, really. I mean, I, I have yet to meet people who are like, yeah, I just got into it to make money because it's you could make money a whole lot of other ways <laughs> and it'd be less of a hassle, both in the preparation and when, what you do. Uh, I think it's it's mainly the administrative burden, and I, I say it that way for a reason. So what we have to do as physicians to take care of patients sometimes are a lot of hurdles. Um, I, I'm a former track guy, and, you know, hurdles hurt my knees. My dad <laughs> was really good at it, but I, I was not so good at it. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that you have to do, and... You know, people think, well, you've got electronic medical records now, and most people have that. It must be easier. It's actually not. I mean, there's a lot of things that you have to do that really slow you down. And I think physicians as a whole, um, one of the biggest things that they that I hear them complaining about is the amount of time that they're spending behind a computer when they want to spend it with the patient. And that's a, that is a challenge. Uh, it's not all bad. Certainly, it's really nice to have access to medical records and to see what other people are doing. Medications, you can see those on there. It doesn't take the place of talking to patients. But I think for most 
people that particularly who trained when I trained and before it, we miss that the, you know, and we really like the opportunity to reconnect to patients. So as uh, we mentioned a couple of times uh, this hour, it's an all-email show. And a reminder that if you want to send in an email with your medical question, it's remedy at mpbonline.org. So our next email question is, could you please comment on the Dean Ornish Program for Mitigating Heart Disease? Uh, first of all, do we know who Dean Ornish is? And if you could talk about that uh, sure. heart disease program. Yeah, Dean Ornish is a cardiologist who's really uh, a passionate guy about living healthy. And after seeing a lot of his patients develop heart disease, he got to thinking about, you know, is there a better way to do this than um, to prevent it and also to reverse it? So, you know, we all know that uh, or should know that you, you can't just wait till somebody has something. We, we really don't need to do that as a society or as individuals. It's much easier to prevent something like diabetes, heart disease, stroke than to treat, treat it after it's there. You just don't want to do that. Um, thankfully, we have a lot of medications that can do that. So Orange really looked at, you know, what are the things that we have evidence on that people can do? that have the potential for not only not only preventing heart disease, but in those people who already have it, maybe even reverse some of the effects of it. So how can we get those arteries to have more stable inside lining or plaque? How can we stabilize those plaques so that the pieces don't um, um, break off and go downstream and clog up the arteries? So he got to looking at the evidence, and uh, in addition to exercise, he came up with this diet program. And um, it's um, a strategic way of looking at what are the things that can help reverse some of those things. It's got a ton of vegetables and lentils and beans uh, as a primary source, sort of a base of food. So it's similar to something like a DASH diet, and that's the dietary approaches to stop hypertension or a Mediterranean-type diet. Uh, the meat sources uh, tend to be more fish-related. If the dairy products um, and things like yogurt and those things, they're actually a little bit less than, say, the the, um, the Mediterranean or DASH diet. And then the total fat content, here's this is like stunning, 10% of calories. Hmm. So it's very, very, very low fat, even the, the plant fats that you get, but in particular the animal fats. So... You know, in looking at any kind of diet, particularly one that can prevent heart disease, it's not for everybody. And the people who have, uh, this is a, certainly a doable diet, and it's moderation. It's not that you can't ever have a piece of cake or something like that. There is some room in there for something, uh, for some of that. But you, it is a pretty, it, for most of us, we eat a lot more than than that amount of fat in our diet. Uh, but if you do this, there's really good evidence that not only can it prevent heart disease, but it can maybe reverse some of those effects of it in certain people, uh, particularly if you can stick to it. The people who have the hardest time are the are meat lovers, right? So uh, my son's watching this program on Netflix uh, on on the guy that just hunts and eats meat all the time. So <laughs> if you're that person, and then we got a lot of them in Mississippi, hey, I, I get it, uh, then this may not be the best thing for you. And there may be other things out there that you can do. Uh, everybody can change something. But this is one in particular that a lot of cardiologists I know are advocating this. And I've seen some of my patients that enrolled in the program. There are, uh, and it is a program. So you can do it on your own, but they actually have sort of similar to something like Weight Watchers that's a program that a lot of cardiologists are really uh, backing and they have group sessions that you can enroll in. Most you know, I, I don't know a lot about coverage just because everybody's like, well, will insurance cover this? 
Most of the time, they they it just depends. You can go for it. I've seen some people that they've been pretty successful in doing that, particularly if they already have heart disease. But a lot of them won't. Um, they just won't cover it, which is unfortunate. It would be nice if they would. But that's the Dean Ornish diet. I don't have any stock, or uh, don't know Dean personally. Um, but um, but that's that's sort of the gist of it. A couple of follow-ups there. First of all, I guess in any diet program, if you would talk about the importance of not just modifying what you eat, but exercising. Yeah, exercise is important. Now, if you talk about weight loss, diet is the best thing. You know, we can go way back. Dr. Rick talked about this a lot and spent a lot of time and effort on on uh, on looking at, at what's a population approach for our state because we struggle with obesity so much. So if you want to lose weight, really, you have to address calories. I mean, it's you can go out and run, um, you know, five miles even at a moderate pace and maybe burn 200, 250, 300 calories. Or you can come in from that and eat uh, two pieces of cake. I guess I'm having a craving for cake. Keep going back to cake. Or, you know, high fatty foods that have, you know, bacon or, or sausage. Uh, and, and guess what? You just blew what you just, you know, exercise. Now, exercise is important. We certainly have a lot of things that it can do that are beneficial to the body. Uh, it does help prevent cardiovascular disease. It is good for general cardiovascular function. Uh, it can help reduce your risk of stroke. It can decrease your blood pressure uh, if you do it uh, enough. It's certainly a load-bearing exercise, like something as simple as walking to running uh, is very beneficial for building up your bones and making them thicker so that it prevents some of the effects of osteoporosis. Just a ton of evidence that it's it's useful. And, I, you know, I look at this as a lifestyle. I've changed how I talk about this. I don't like the word diet. It's more of like what are your food choices uh, and your patterns of eating, because that's the other things. Like, how do people eat? Some people eat, uh, you know, out of stress. So it's it's difficult to to change that. But starting to think about it and track it is the first step. And as you mentioned, exercise is important. So physical activity is very important. Uh, you know, that thing, just another quick follow-up, you had mentioned earlier prevention, and that is something I think that um, maybe kind of industry has latched on to recently, the idea of if we prevent illness on the front end, uh, in the long run, it's better for people, they stay healthier, but also from a, a business standpoint, it's, it's oh, yeah. at least we're spending less money on health care. Yeah, definitely you can do that, and, and that's why you see a lot of plans, you know, I'm just using Blue Cross Blue Shield as one of them, that they're saying, hey, we want to invest a lot of time and money in programs that can help prevent that because it makes sense in the long run. All right, time for another break. This is an all-email show on Southern Remedy. If you want to have your email question answered, send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. I'm Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Jimmy this morning. Uh, we're answering some recent emails, and we'll be back with more after this.
Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and uh, I'm here with Kevin Farrell. We're going through some emails. That's right. We are not live this morning, so unfortunately you can't call in. But we are going through some recent emails that we've had that people have sent in to the program and trying to go through those great questions that people send in by email. A lot of people don't realize you can do that. You can send your email anytime that you have it about any healthcare question to remedy at mpbonline.org. All right. Uh, so, Dr. Jimmy, earlier in the show, we talked about what you thought the, the sort of the challenges of being a doctor are. And you mentioned why you think a lot of people get involved in healthcare. What would you say are the, the biggest rewards, the, the best part of your job being a doctor? The thing I love the most, the most about it are the relationships with people. And, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time I've been brought in as a member of the family uh, you know, is sort of an honorary member of the family and different decisions that they have to make. Uh, it is a it is a weighty, if you want to, you know, use that descriptor relationship that you have with them. But, you know, I, particularly in, in my case, I've been there when people uh, first deliver their baby and they come to take their baby to me, you know, at the two-week visit, and I get to celebrate that. I get to see that baby grow up. Uh, some of my oldest patients now I started seeing right after they were born uh, and now are teenagers, you know, almost in the, uh, um, almost adults. Um, and then also at the end of life, too, you know, walking somebody through those last stages of their life and walking a family through is an incredible opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, I, honestly, I, I sort of view it as a sacred time. And uh, one of the, the best compliments that I've ever gotten, I was going to one of my patient's funerals and I sort of sat in the back. I thought I was, you know, I might have to leave early. And after the funeral was over, they had a uh, luncheon for the family. And uh, my patient's wife came to me. I was about to slip out. I was just going to tell her goodbye. And she said, uh, oh, you're going to come eat with us as part of our family. And I sat at a table full of uh, cousins and, um, uh, you know, just uh, a little bit removed family members. And they said, you know, we knew your patient when he was younger, but we didn't know him in the last 10 years or so of his life. What can you tell us about him? And I was able to share some of those things with them. And I was just part of the family. Uh, that is, you know, certainly people say, and it is true, you know, physicians are, are rewarded monetarily for what they do. And, and certainly you, you pay a lot of money to, to learn things uh, over time. And But that to me, that's the most rewarding thing are those relationships with people. You know, as I mentioned earlier, my dad was a nurse. And, I, you know, I think that it, we owe a debt of gratitude to healthcare workers because they really are people who are giving. They give of their time uh, to help out others. So we, we owe a debt of gratitude to those of you who choose to go in in the medical field. All right, so this next uh, email is a bit of a sensitive subject, and I've got an interesting follow-up afterwards, but it says, it seems logical that a man having oral sex with a woman who has HPV risks getting throat lesions. Is a woman, in turn, who has oral sex with a man who has HPV at risk for the same? And again, if you would, HPV is what? Human papillomavirus. So it is a, a uh, we've, we've changed the nomenclature a, a bit on this. So it's an STI. We used to say STD. So it's a sexually transmitted illness or, or disease. Uh, so it is a virus that is transmitted by direct contact. So uh, HPV can cause, um, the biggest thing that it causes are lesions on the cervix of a woman that can lead to, um, to uh, certainly warts. Uh, so it's, a, you know, in that same virus sort of category as, as warts are 
Um, it doesn't mean that the warts on your finger can do this or anything or your hand or foot, but uh, this particular virus increases your risk, particularly for some of those. Um, there, there's multiple ones of HPV viruses, so there are some that can increase your risk of cervical cancer. So that's the whole reason for the development of the HPV vaccine was to decrease cervical cancer, and it can prevent it. I mean, we've already seen, started to see a drop in that. So the question about how it's transmitted, so it is direct contact. So the, you know, the question, if, if a man is having oral sex with a woman, certainly you can do that, and that can lead to throat cancer. So that's, you know, again, these are, these are uh, cause a high turnover of those cells that they infect, and anytime you have a cell that's reproducing, you know, pretty quickly, you can have a risk for cancer. But the opposite is is uh, certainly true. So if uh, if a man has this, and the thing about men is we are uh, often asymptomatic. So a man can be asymptomatic, not have any symptoms, not have any warts or anything, and still carry this virus. Uh, it and again, cervical cancer would be the most common thing. But you can have that, uh, you know, throat cancer that way. Uh, Michael Douglas is a good example. I mean, this is uh, you know from everything that's been released. That's that's what he had was was probably due to that uh, that virus. So you can see it. It's not as common in women, and that's probably because some of the other risk factors for it uh, aren't as aren't seen as much in women. So alcohol intake can certainly increase your risk of throat cancer if you're exposed to it. Smoking can do it too, uh, but it's possible. So it's a it's a person to person contact, and you don't necessarily know that other person is infected with it. So as I mentioned, you know, that's a bit of a sensitive subject. And so, again, if you're a patient and you come into the doctor's office and you have something that you're maybe you're a little bit embarrassed about, shy to talk about, is it the old rip the Band-Aid off, just kind of, <laughs> you know, work up your nerve and, and, and go into it? Or what would be some advice for... Yeah, that. it's, you know, we're trained to, to deal with that. We expect that we're going to have some sensitive questions for, for patients, and we don't assume anything. I don't care if they're, a, you know, a United States senator or if they're, you know, I mean, people are people, and you can have different, uh, you know, different medical conditions. And ethically, we're, we're called to treat that person just the same, no matter what. So, I mean, that's from a physician standpoint. No physician or healthcare provider should ever, ever treat somebody bad because of a sensitive type question like that. So we realize that as a patient, you you don't always want to ask those questions. Now, we do have some terminology like we'll say it's a doorknob question, which means your physician has seen you for what they what appears to be the reason you're there and they're about to leave and as soon as they have their hand on the doorknob to go out the door the patient says oh doc by the way and and then you get to the real reason why they're there whether that's you know erectile dysfunction or something else so um uh, you know just keep that in mind and you can preface it i would practice it just like you were practicing a speech that you have to give to a hundred people and just say, you know, uh, doc, I am, I say what you're feeling. So just tell your physician, uh, I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed about sharing this with you. What your response from them probably is going to be is, Hey, I understand. That's why I'm here. And this is in confidence. And your physician should always have that, you know, confidentiality is a core aspect of our relationship with our patients. But um, just tell them how you feel and just lay it out there. And the way we train medical students and residents to deal with this 
is because we hear some things that, you know, you don't just hear walking down the street sometime. Uh, so um, how do you deal with that? You think of it exactly like somebody who would have hypertension or diabetes. I mean, that's just, we try to take all that out of it. And I even tell patients, look, I can see that you're nervous about this. We're just going to treat this just like any other medical condition. And also, again, uh, from the patient standpoint, you've come there, you're paying for a visit to your, your physician, your primary, your health care provider. You kind of do need to work up the sure. the gumption to go ahead and, and say, because you can't read minds and suddenly you yeah. know, know what, what the patient oh, wants I've to had, talk about. Oh, I've had patients write it down on a sheet of paper. They could not even say it, and then they would pass it to me. You know? And that's fine. I mean, however you want to communicate that. Uh, to your physician, but don't, you know, it's, that's what you're right. That's what they're, we're, we're here for. We're here to hear that. All right. Uh, this is another one, the one that I kind of snuck in. Uh, let's talk a little bit about prescriptions. Uh, some, first of all, are there some general guidelines for taking uh, pr- pills and that sort of thing, or is it pretty much dependent upon the, the type of medication that you're taking? Like when you take it and how you take it. Yeah. So all that, uh, every medication is designed to be taken a certain way in a, a different delivery system. So some of them, when we think about medications, we think about things that you uh, that you swallow, basically. But, you know, there's liquid medications. There's medications that are patches that are absorbed through your skin. Uh, certainly, we mentioned insulin or earlier that you inject. So there's all kinds of different ways. And every time you start to talk about a different medication, some of them have specific instructions. One of the most common ones that I use as an example are the thyroid medications, so the thyroid replacement. So if your thyroid's not working, you have hypothyroidism, then you might take that. Uh, That particular medication is affected by a number of other medications that you take. For instance, if you're taking an antacid that decreases the pH in your stomach, the amount of acid that you have in your stomach, that's probably going to not just the the, uh, thyroid medication, it's probably going to affect the absorption of that because it's designed to be absorbed at a certain pH. Um, Over-the-counter medications we mentioned earlier, things like calcium, that can sort of bind to uh, other medications. So you may see some things on there that make it more complicated to take all that, uh, like wait 30 minutes, take it before eating, take it with food, and some medications you want to take with food. I mean, there's you just have to pay attention to that. That should be that's where your pharmacist comes in as a part of the healthcare team, and they can really help out. If you have any kind of questions like that, ask them. They're probably going to tell you or provide you some information when you have that medication. Uh, particularly, it's going to be on the bottle. Things like that are usually on the bottle. Take with food once daily. Take 30 minutes before eating. Um, the physician sometimes will put that on there. But, you know, a lot of times the pharmacist is the one that's going to clarify that for you. Excellent question. When you have something that's like take one, I have uh, lisinopril that I take one pill a day. Is it better to take it at the same time every day? Or does that matter? It might, I mean, from in terms of getting in a habit, it might be better. But medically yeah. speaking? So most medications that you take at a certain time period, if you take once or twice a day, uh, it needs to be in the same vicinity of time. Now, it's not something that's like if it's one minute off, then that's it. It doesn't, you know, doesn't count for the day. It doesn't work that well. But s- you need to have some kind of regular schedule for that. Now, some medications, if you miss a dose of it, you can take, you know, an, a, a dose as soon as you remember. Not everyone. Um, and then be very careful, no matter what you're taking, if you're taking something that um, you say, you know, well, one works, my blood pressure is doing just fine. What if I just take another one? That could put you in a lot of uh, a lot of problems. Ask your physician or your primary care provider first about that. 
Uh, and I think one of the, the best little things that I got from uh, the pharmacy is the little plastic tray that has oh, Monday, yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, yeah. uh, because that really helps me stay on track and, and making sure. And I always look at my drawer and say, okay, Tuesday's not popped open yet. I need to go right. ahead and take that you can pill. load it up once a week. All right, time to take another break. This is an all-email show on Southern Remedy. Uh, if you have an email question that you want to have answered, you can send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. I'm Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell in with Dr. Jimmy for this all-email program. We'll have one more segment, and it comes up after this break. Back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy, and I'm here with Kevin Farrell. We're not live today, so we're not able to take your questions or comments by phone, but we are going through some emails that you have submitted. You can always submit those emails to us at remedy at mpbonline.org. All right, uh, Dr. Jimmy, it's uh, been fun being with you here this hour uh, doing some of these emails. Got a couple more that we can get to. Uh, this next one says, is it dangerous to take reflux meds every day for years? And again, we're doing a little bit of uh, education as well. Remind us what reflux meds treat and what they're used sure. for. So gastroesophageal reflux or, or reflux, is it? a lot of people just sort of shorten that. So that's a, an excess amount of acid in your stomach that... Normally, your esophagus, which is the tube that connects the throat, um, the upper part of your, or the lower part of your throat to your stomach, the upper part of your stomach. So it's a big tube, basically, of muscle. So it moves stuff down like it should. But the bottom part of it has a lower esophageal sphincter, an LES. That sphincter is a little bit tighter band of muscle to help sort of close off the stomach. So after you swallow something, whether it's liquid or solids, it's going to close off, and then the stomach's going to do its thing with breaking down some things that you ate. So if that doesn't, if it's floppy and it doesn't work as well, then that acid and its contents can go back up into the esophagus, and that's what causes that burning sensation. You might even have what's called a water brash, which is you have a little bit of, you know, you burp, and there's a little bit of something else there, that nasty, you know, sort of bitter taste. So there are medications to treat this. Certainly what you eat can affect this too, so you want to make sure that you're, uh, that you're targeting that. There are some other risk factors like obesity that can make it worse. But we do have two big classes of medications that we that are uh, uh, actually both of these are over the counter now. So one is a proton pump inhibitor. So those are the things that, that end in zole, like esomeprazole or omeprazole or, or um, pentoprazole. So that's protonics, nexium, uh, those kinds of things, uh, prilosec. Um, and then you have the uh, H2 blockers. That's mainly Zantac is the one that's out there the most. Um, it used to have Tagament that was out there too. So both of these classes can help reduce the, the um, acidity of the stomach fluids. 
But what we know now, particularly about the proton pump inhibitors, if you use, they're certainly okay to use if your physician says it's okay. Again, they may interact with other medications that you're taking. So if you're taking, you know, some of the um, calcium, basically, is a good example. You're not going to absorb as much calcium if you're taking one of these. And actually, even if you're not taking calcium supplements, that's one of the long-term side effects is possibly a risk of osteoporosis if you've taken it, particularly over three years in length. Um, other things that they interfere with, magnesium is a mineral that you um, you uh, need for your body to work right, particularly like nerve function. Uh, that's one that's actually decreased. Uh, and even if you take a supplement on, on top of the of the proton pump inhibitor, the the reflex medication, that can interfere with that. And then there's a lot of other different long-term side effects. There is some possibility. Uh, they saw this, I think, in rats of uh, of an increase of a, a type of tumor that you get in the GI tract called a carcinoid tumor. Uh, but that in in studies in humans, it really hasn't borne out that way. So since all that information came out. We actually use proton pump inhibitors uh, for shorter periods of time. We used to tell people, hey, you can just be on this your whole life and it won't cause any problems. Thankfully, what we do is we study medications over time, and we found that some of these other side effects did come up uh, or potential side effects. So if you've been on one a long time, you may want to see about coming off of it. Um, or if, you know, if you're being put on one and your primary care providers sort of gave you a ton of it, you know, a whole year's worth, then it's probably worthwhile to, to see how you can do after three to six months of coming off of it. Now, there are some cases where you need to be on it longer. So there's some people have such a severe erosion of the lower part of their esophagus that it puts them at a very high risk of cancer, of esophageal cancer. And those people, uh, in particular, if it's not, if it's there a lot, they don't need to come off of it. They need to stay on it. I mean, if you look at the risk-benefit, it's much more beneficial to do that. People bring up other things like Tums or, you know, just calcium carbonate, uh, Pepto. Uh, we really hadn't seen a whole lot of, of side effects if you take it like it says. I mean, if you're taking it, if you're having to take Tums, you know, six times a day, then you might have some problems and probably need to be looked at. But um, those are fairly safe. In fact, that's the way some people use calcium supplementation. They just take, you know, six tums a day. It's about 200 milligrams of calcium in each little uh, uh, tablet. They have all kinds of different ways of getting that in there now. They don't look like they did. They do, <laughs> but there's other things in there too. But, yeah, so that's that's the, the skinny on uh, – on proton pump inhibitors and, and reflux medications. Short term, they should be fine. They are used to treat a lot of different things, a lot of different severe gastritis, or if you have a stomach ulcer, you certainly probably need one of those. Uh, your GI doctor is going to tell you that, though, after they, they scope you. All right. And uh, I've heard that uh, if you have minor heartburn, which I guess is kind of the common mm -hmm. That and you sleep on your side. That if you sleep on one side, it might help out as opposed to sleeping on the other side. It's variable. You know, a lot of people say the stomach empties better if you're on your your right side or your left side. And uh, you know, it's it's sort of like uh, you know the other thing you think of with that is pregnancy. So everybody says always you know sleep on your left side if you're having problems with uh, everything from swelling to. 
you know, cardiovascular or hypertension things. And that part, that's actually pretty true. Uh, as far as stomach emptying, you know, we do know if you lay down, it's probably going to get worse. That's why most people's reflux gets worse because it's easier for those contents to go back up into the esophagus. And whereas if you're uh, upright when you eat, uh, you're using gravity to sort of let things go through a little bit more. You know, you can do some other things too. People don't, uh, sometimes they don't pay attention to these types of things. So the types of foods we mentioned, but also how much you eat. The stomach you can think of as a balloon. The more you blow up that balloon, the more it's going to try to decrease its contents and, you know, spew those contents back up. Uh, so eating smaller portion sizes can sometimes help with that. That just reminds me, this is kind of a crazy tangent, but there was a, a prank that uh, Major League Baseball players used to play on Bat Boys, and that was to challenge them to drink, I think it's like a quart of milk, a gallon of milk or something. And the thing is, <laughs> as you said, your stomach only holds a certain amount of thing, and right. when it holds much, too much, it's got to come it's back up. It's got to come back up somewhere. <laughs> That's right. Simple physics. All right, I think we have time for one last question, and it is that uh, I've... It says, I have a bruise on the left lower extremity anterior below the knee and above the ankle. It's been there a while and hasn't gone away. The bruise hardly looks improved and is still tender to the touch. What do I need to do to help this heal? So this sounds like it's uh, hemosiderin. So hemosiderin, you know, you, your red blood cells, which carry oxygen in your body, they have iron. That iron molecule is used in there to uh, help bind oxygen and then release it to, to the tissues. So if you have red, red blood cells that sit around for a long period of time, they break down, and part of the breakdown process in that iron, it has a, a uh, compound called hemosiderin. Hemosiderin in the skin looks sort of bronzy colored. You do get that immediately, you know, with the bruising. You know, you know it's uh, sort of that nice uh, uh, red when you have the initial bleeding, and then it, as it starts to break down, it can turn purple and then blue and black. But if it stays there longer than that and the body's not able to clear it out because of where it is, you can have hemosiderin staining. It's almost like a tattoo underneath the skin. It's a little bit deeper than that, though. You can also have it with other things. This is, you know, bruising from just hitting uh, the extremity. That's uh, one of the more common ways to do it. Um, dermatologists can help get rid of this. It's really hard, though. That hemosiderin stays in the tissue for a long period of time. Uh, there are some creams that they can use if it looks like it's superficial. If it's deeper than that, sometimes laser treatments can do that. It's totally cosmetic if it's from a bruise. It's not going to cause any long-term problems. Now, if you have swelling of the lower extremities or if you have diabetes or if you have uh, if the, the veins don't quite bring blood back from the lower extremities, you can have what's called venous stasis disease, and that can cause some, some hemosiderin uh, to be deposited in those lower extremities. And that's, again, it's, it's sort of a cosmetic thing, but it's a sign of something else needs to be addressed because it can put you, not necessarily because of that hemosiderin, but because of other things, uh, can put you at risk for, uh, uh, from some other problems. And I guess something like this, a bruise is something that everybody gets. And so if it kind of clears up uh, in, what, maybe a, a week, something like that, okay? I'd say two weeks. Okay. So if it's still there over two weeks, you might want to just get your physician to look at it just because it, you know, it, it should clear out by two weeks. All right. I think that's all the time we have for this hour. Thanks, Dr. Jimmy, for coming in a little early and helping us work through some of these emails. Sure. Glad to do it. And we're always happy to 
have people call in, but also to email us. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. You can always send us an email. You can send it directly to remedy at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and support from listeners just like you. We'll be back next Wednesday at 11. Stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next.